Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Mulherker. I'm currently a medicine intern in Philadelphia, and I will be your host today. Welcome, guys, to the first episode in our three-part series on anemia. Anemia, when it came to the board exam, was definitely a topic that I was super rusty on. Anybody? Okay. The, the reason that I think anemia was such a challenging topic for me is because there are so many different types of anemia, and whenever they're presented in board exams, it's always you know, a very long vignette followed by a long set of labs. And sometimes those could have, those could get really confusing and mind boggling. And I would find myself getting lost in all the individual labs and not really be looking at the big picture. And so I really think the way to become a master at anemia is to create whatever you want to call it, an advanced organizer, a schema, a mind palace, you know, whatever you call it, you should have a systematic way to approach questions about anemia. The best way to do this is to first create that schematic and then practice answering questions and referring back to that mental diagram. And so that's exactly what this three-part series is designed to help you do. Uh, We're going to help build a schema mind palace for anemia at the basic level of the USMLE step one, um, what you should know as a med student. And we're going to divide it based on the three different categories of anemia. At the end of each episode, we'll include a rapid-fire review to kind of help ingrain that mental diagram. And so this episode is going to focus on the first type of anemia, which is microcytic anemia. And we'll get into exactly what that is in a minute. I'd like to start, though, by asking you guys to think about what even is anemia? What's the definition of anemia? If you're thinking that it's some kind of impairment in the ability of our blood to carry oxygen to the tissues, you're absolutely right. Anemia can be from decreased red blood cells, decreased hemoglobin. These are some of the things you want to look out for. Basically, our body is having trouble carrying oxygen to the tissues. Do you guys know what normal hemoglobin is, what the levels of normal hemoglobin are? So it definitely depends on gender. Uh, The hemoglobin on average is slightly higher in males, but average reference value to keep in mind is about 13 to 16 grams per deciliter, and that's normal hemoglobin for both males and females. The reference values are always gonna be provided on the exam, and I would always advise you to look at them because even if you think that you know what the reference value is, it doesn't hurt to check because it's right there. So that's hemoglobin. What is hematocrit? And before you think about a value, I want you to think about what hematocrit represents. So hematocrit is defined as the percentage of volume of red blood cells in the blood. Whenever we centrifuge a sample of blood, the hematocrit forms the bottom layer because it's the percentage of red blood cells in the blood. What are the other layers whenever we centrifuge blood? Do you guys know? If the bottom is hematocrit, there's two other layers on top of that. So the middle layer is the buffy coat. Uh, I think that's kind of a funny name for it, but buffy coat represents the white blood cells and platelets. So the red blood cells are the heaviest. They sink to the bottom. On top of that is the buffy coat, which are white blood cells and platelets. And then the topmost layer is then the plasma. So the rest of the fluid in the blood that contains, you know, other proteins like immunoglobulins and stuff. So just as a general rule of thumb, hematocrit is generally estimated by hemoglobin times three. 
just roughly. Okay, so usually if the, if the hemoglobin is going to be low and a patient is anemic, their hematocrit's probably going to be low as well. So whenever we're diagnosing anemia, how do, we even, how do we even know that a patient is anemic? What value do you usually look at? The hemoglobin. Usually the hemoglobin is low, and that tells you that a patient is anemic. And then the next step, once you figure out that a patient is in fact anemic, is to figure out what type of anemia they have. And there's different ways to organize anemia. Uh, there's, there's definitely a lot of ways, but I have always learned to divide the types of anemia based on the mean corpuscular volume. What is mean corpuscular volume, or MCV? What does that mean? It's the average size of the red blood cell. So we know that a patient is anemic based on low hemoglobin. They probably have a low hematocrit as well, so low volume of red blood cells in the blood. And then we look at what is the size of that red blood cell, each individual RBC. So do you guys know what normal MCV is? It's about 80 to 100. And the unit on this, I had to look it up, is a femtoliter, uh, abbreviated FL. Um, it's one cubic micrometer. So you really don't need to know that. It's not at all high yield. But you should know that a normal MCV volume is about 80 to 100. So if it's 80 to 100, a patient is considered normocytic. So let's say a patient's hemoglobin is low, and then you look at the MCV, and it's between 80 and 100. That would mean that the patient has normocytic anemia because their MCV is normal. What if their MCV is lower than 80? What type of anemia do they have? So lower than 80 means their red blood cells are small, so they have microcytic anemia. And if the MCV is higher than 100, what would that be? They have large RBCs, so they have macrocytic anemia. So it's pretty simple. You look at a patient's hemoglobin, it's low, so they have anemia. And then you look at the MCV. Is it normocytic, 80 to 100? Or is it microcytic, less than 80? Or is it macrocytic, higher than 80? And once you have placed your patient into one of those three categories, then it's just about knowing what are the different causes of anemia within each category. And so now we get to the meat of our episode, which is in fact titled microcytic anemia. And so you can imagine in today's episode, we are going to discuss the different causes of microcytic anemia. So why would patients have a low hemoglobin with a small mean corpuscular volume? And what I'm going to do is present to you just a few different cases. Uh, we'll talk about vignettes, the way that they might be presented on boards, and we'll just kind of dissect the cases and understand why each disease presents the way that it does. Okay? So let's jump right in with our first case. In case one, uh, I'm going to describe a Mediterranean couple who comes in with their nine-month-old baby who seems to be falling off the growth curve. The baby is very irritable. His mother has noticed some dark urine, and on physical exam, he shows scleral icterus. He has diffuse jaundice. He also has hepatosplenomegaly. If you take a skull x-ray, it's going to show kind of a hair-on-end appearance. Do you guys know what the likely diagnosis in this baby is? So with this vignette, I'm going for a diagnosis of beta thalassemia major. Do you guys know why... You, how you even get beta thalassemia? So beta thalassemia results from a point mutation in the globin gene. 
it's important to know that it's a point mutation in the globin gene, which means there's one amino acid that's replaced. That results in underproduction or absent production of the beta globin. And there's different types of thalassemia based on what type of mutation it is. So if they have absent production, we call it major, beta thalassemia major. And if there's just underproduction of the beta globin gene, it's beta thalassemia minor. And that can often be asymptomatic. Do you guys know how you would diagnose thalassemia? You use hemoglobin electrophoresis. And it's important to understand what we're looking for. So what's the normal structure of adult hemoglobin? Remember, normal hemoglobin is a tetramer that's made of four chains. We call it hemoglobin A1, and the four chains are two alpha chains and two beta chains. So it's alpha 2, beta 2, and that forms a tetramer, and that's normal adult hemoglobin. Now, patients with beta thalassemia don't have the beta globin gene, so they can't make that normal tetramer with two alpha and two beta chains. So what do they make instead? They make something that we call hemoglobin A2. This has two alpha chains and two delta chains. So remember, normal hemoglobin has two alpha, two beta chains. That's called hemoglobin A1. Um, that's where the HbA1c comes from, which we measure in diabetic patients because we're measuring how much normal hemoglobin, hemoglobin A1, is glycosylated. And then patients with beta thalassemia will make HbA2, and this is an abnormal variant of adult hemoglobin because there's not enough beta chains. So instead, they substitute delta chains, and they have two alpha, two delta chains. Now, this baby has some pretty serious symptoms. Um, you know, he's jaundiced, he has hepatosplenomegaly, he has a weird-looking skull x-ray. Why is he coming in at nine months? You'd think this would be going on for, you know, a longer time. So symptoms for thalassemia usually start to develop after a period of six months. Do you guys know why? That's because until six months, babies are still making their fetal hemoglobin, hemoglobin F. And that is made up of two alpha chains and two gamma chains, so totally different structure. So when they have fetal hemoglobin, they're not going to present with symptoms of anemia because they still have that fetal hemoglobin. So it's kind of protective, and then they're not symptomatic until later. So now let's talk about the baby's specific symptoms and understand why he's presenting that way. So the first thing that the parents noticed is he's falling off the growth curve and he's very irritable. Why is that? That's simply because the baby's anemic, okay? He's not able to deliver appropriate amounts of oxygen to his tissues, and so they're not growing normally. Now, what about the jaundice, the dark urine? Why does that occur? That's because the body is hemolyzing the abnormal hemoglobin. HbA2 is not recognized as normal hemoglobin, and so that gets hemolyzed. And so they can present with symptoms of hemolysis, like jaundice and dark urine. What about the hepatosplenomegaly, the skull x-ray that shows the hair on end appearance. You might hear it described as a crew cut appearance. What are those symptoms coming from? So this is interesting. In patients with thalassemia, they can get extramedullary hematopoiesis as well as bone marrow expansion. So extramedullary hematopoiesis explains why the spleen and liver are larger. And then the bone marrow expansion explains the skeletal abnormalities so that 
hair on end appearance on the skull. They can also get facial abnormalities and they're called, it's called chipmunk faces. So they look like a chipmunk because literally the bones in their face are growing larger. Now, do you guys know what iron studies would look like for thalassemia? Let's talk about the iron as well as the ferritin. What would happen to iron and ferritin in patients with thalassemia? So iron or ferritin can both be either normal or increased, and that's because of increased red blood cell turnover. So iron and ferritin would actually be normal or increased in patients with thalassemia. And do you guys know what special type of spell, cell type you might see on their blood smear? I'm going for target cells. So target cells are, they look like, you know, regular red blood cells, but then they have a big white out appearance in the middle. So it looks like an actual target. And these types of cells form anytime you have trouble making hemoglobin. So the reason that they have that target shape with the white in the middle is because the red blood cells have excess cell membrane and decreased volume. And so there's not enough actual content to fill up that cell, and so the middle part looks whiter. So target cells would be something that you would see on a smear of a patient with thalassemia. Now, unfortunately, especially with beta thalassemia major, the mortality can be very high. Do you guys know how we manage patients with this disease? So they might need regular blood transfusion just to keep their hemoglobin normal. And do you guys know what a complication of regular blood transfusion might be? This is sometimes tested. Uh, a complication of regular blood transfusion is actually iron overload. So secondary hemochromatosis. I think that's pretty interesting. Now keep in mind that usually beta thalassemia is not that extreme. Most of patients with beta thalassemia will have beta thalassemia minor, which can even be asymptomatic. Look though, be careful to look out for the Mediterranean origin, as well as microcytic anemia with normal iron studies. And on electrophoresis, you're going to see more hemoglobin A2. Now, another type of thalassemia, besides beta thalassemia, is alpha thalassemia. Do you guys know what type of demographic this tends to affect? usually Asian and African populations. Beta thalassemia is more in Mediterraneans and alpha thalassemia in the Asian and African populations. And what type of mutation causes the alpha thalassemia? So this is caused by the alpha globin gene deletion. Okay, the entire gene is just deleted. So this is important because remember, beta thalassemia was caused by a point mutation in Alpha thalassemia, you get deletion of the alpha globin gene. So normally, we have four alpha globin genes on chromosome 16, two on each chromosome. So there's a total of four alpha globin genes. And the type of alpha thalassemia depends on how many of these genes are deleted. So let's start with the worst case scenario. What if all four alpha globin genes are deleted? What's that called? That is hemoglobin Bart's disease, okay? Um, I just remember Bart, B-A-R-T, has four letters, and so all four alpha globin genes are deleted. So hemoglobin Bart's is really serious because they have no alpha globin genes. Do you guys know how patients will present? 
So it's hydrops fatalis, okay? These babies are going to be stillborn because they don't have any alpha globin genes. Now, what if three out of four genes are deleted? This is hemoglobin H disease. I remember this because a high number of alpha globin genes are deleted, but not all. So hemoglobin H disease, H for high number of genes deleted. This still presents with a pretty severe anemia. Now, what if two out of four genes are deleted? This is called alpha thalassemia minor, and it presents with a mild anemia. With alpha thalassemia minor, we'll talk about cis versus trans deletion. What does that even mean, cis versus trans? So you have to think back to genetics to remember what this means. So cis means that both deletions are on the same chromosome. Trans means that the deletions are on opposite chromosomes. Now, which one would be worse to have if you're going to have kids? Think about it. Would it be worse to have cis deletion or trans deletion for, for offspring? It's going to be worse to have a cis deletion because think about what you're passing down. If you have a trans deletion, then you're only going to pass down one missing gene. But if you have a cis deletion, then you have a chance of passing down both missing genes. And so that's kind of worse for the carrier's kids. Now, what about studies for patients with alpha thalassemia? Let's talk about their blood smear as well as their iron studies. What do you think it's going to be? It's pretty much the same as beta thalassemia. So suspect thalassemia in patients with microcytic anemia, but normal iron studies. And also pay attention to their demographics because that can be a clue as to whether they have alpha or beta thalassemia. Let's move on now to talk about the next type of microcytic anemia. So this is a type of anemia which is X-linked, and it's caused by the deficiency in an enzyme called ALA synthase, or aminolevulinate synthase. If you were to do a peripheral blood smear, you'd see basophilic stippling of the RBCs. Do you know what the diagnosis is here? So this is sideroblastic anemia. This is kind of tough. You have to remember how hemoglobin is synthesized. So if you don't remember, let me give you a quick two-second recap. Basically, hemoglobin synthesis starts in the mitochondria, moves to the cytoplasm, and then finishes up again in the mitochondria. So ALA synthase, or aminolevulinate synthase, is an enzyme which converts glycine and succinyl-CoA into aminolevulinic acid. It synthesizes aminolevulinic acid, thus the name ALA synthase. Once aminolevulinic acid is made, it then moves to the cytoplasm. So basically, if you can't form ALA because ALA synthase isn't working, then there's nothing to move into the cytoplasm. And so the process of hemoglobin synthesis kind of gets stuck within the mitochondria. And so that is why you end up seeing basophilic stippling of the red blood cells. Okay, so there's actually two different findings that you might be asked about. It could be in the bone marrow versus in the peripheral smear. So do you know what finding you're going to find in the bone marrow? So bone marrow smear will show ringed sideroblasts. 
The reason we have a ring is because iron accumulate in the mitochondria and all the mitochondria are focused around the nucleus. So just imagine a bunch of mitochondria with hemoglobin synthesis products stuffed in them all circled around the nucleus. So you can imagine it forms a ring. And hemoglobin synthesis obviously requires iron. So do you guys know what stain would be used to visualize the ringed sideroblasts? Prussian blue, because Prussian blue is the stain that we use to visualize iron. So the reason that you see ringed sideroblasts in the bone marrow is because these cells still have nucleus and organelles at this point. Remember, eventually in the synthesis of RBCs, mature RBCs lose all their organelles and nuclei. But in the bone marrow, it's present, and so you can see the ringed sideroblasts, all the mitochondria is circled around the nucleus. Now, what do we see in the peripheral smear? So here we see basophilic stippling, and this is because now the organelles have disappeared, the nucleus has disappeared, and so what you're seeing now is just the residual ribosomes all aggregating with the hemoglobin synthesis products on them. And so in the bone marrow, you see the ringed sideroblasts because they're around the nucleus, but in the peripheral smear, you just see haphazard basophilic stippling. Now, sideroblastic anemia can either be inherited, where you don't have, you have a mutation in the gene for ALA synthase, or they can be acquired. Do you guys know what are some causes of acquired sideroblastic anemia? So alcohol is the most common cause. Uh, alcohol really messes with bone marrow function, just remember that. Another one is B6 deficiency. Why? That is because we need B6 for ALA synthase. It's a cofactor for, in order for ALA synthase to work. And this is totally random, but what tuberculosis drug can cause a B6 deficiency? Isoniazid. Never forget that. And so if isoniazid causes a B6 deficiency, then patients who are being treated with that drug for TB can also get sideroblastic anemia. So we talked about alcohol, B6 deficiency, and isoniazid as acquired causes of sideroblastic anemia. And last question for this disease, what would the iron studies show? So you will see increased iron as well as increased ferritin. Just remember, you have all the ingredients to make hemoglobin, but we don't have a critical enzyme, and so we just can't use them. All right, our next case. What kind of anemia would you see in a patient who has chronic inflammatory disorders, such as rheumatoid arthritis or even malignancy? It's a pretty broad question. This is anemia of chronic disease. Do you guys know the pathogenesis, why patients get anemia of chronic disease? So in patients with chronic inflammation or malignancy, there is a release of inflammatory cytokines, and these can cause the liver to release hepcidin. So hepcidin inhibits ferroportin on cell membranes, okay? And ferroportin, it's kind of in the name, helps transport iron out of the cell. It also helps absorb it in the GI tract. It helps transport iron. So if hepcidin inhibits ferroportin, then we're not able to allow iron to leave the cell. We're not able to absorb iron from the GI tract. And so the reason, so what, what ends up happening is that there's low iron because all the iron ends up 
getting stored within the cells. I kind of think about it this way. So inflammatory cytokines are released usually because there is some kind of pathogen or some kind of threat to the body. And a lot of times pathogens use up the iron and the body doesn't want them to get it. And so anemia of chronic disease is kind of a protective mechanism. Our body wants to store the iron within the cells to prevent it from getting to the pathogen. And sometimes our body gets confused and these inflammatory cytokines are released not just because of a pathogen, but also because of chronic inflammatory disorders as well as malignancy. I hope that makes sense. Just kind of think about it as the body is holding on to all the iron and storing it within the cells and it's not really absorbing any iron because it doesn't want to help a potential pathogen. So anytime there's inflammatory cytokines, they cause the liver to release hepcidin, which inhibits ferroportin. Now, it's really important to understand the iron studies for this disease. So in, in anemia of chronic disease, what is going to happen to the serum iron? It's going to be decreased because the body is storing all the iron within the cells and it's not absorbing iron from the GI tract. What happens to the total iron binding capacity? Total iron binding capacity, abbreviated TIBC, is decreased as well. There's less transferrin present because we don't need to transport iron in the blood. So our body kind of down-regulates transferrin production, and then the ability of the body to hold on to iron, or the TIBC, is decreased. And what happens to ferritin in anemia of chronic disease? So remember that ferritin is actually an acute phase reactant. So anytime there's inflammation, ferritin increases. And in this situation, it's anemia of chronic disease, which results from inflammation, and so ferritin is going to be increased. Good job, guys. As you can see, anemia is quite a lot to think through, but I think that once you understand it, then the questions, when they're presented, it's going to make a lot more sense. So let's move on to our next case. Let's say a 68-year-old man who has a four-month history of fatigue and darker stools comes into the office just kind of saying that he doesn't really feel well. On exam, he has conjunctival pallor, his labs show microcytic anemia. What's his diagnosis? So for this patient, I'm kind of going for the classic presentation of iron deficiency anemia. Do you guys know what's happening in this patient? Any, clue, any, any guesses as to what this patient has? So he's a 68-year-old man who has a history of fatigue and darker stools. So... In a patient like this, an elderly patient who has unexplained fatigue and microcytic anemia, uh, you want to think about colon cancer until proven otherwise. Um, the fact that he has darker stools means that he's likely losing blood through the stool. Patients who are over 50 years old should be getting colonoscopies at least every 10 years. And so in an elderly patient who presents with fatigue, microcytic anemia, you really want to get a colonoscopy right away to rule out cancer um, or some other, some other type of discrete blood loss through the colon. It's actually not colon cancer, which is the most common cause of lower GI bleeding. Do you guys know what the most common cause of lower GI bleeding is? Usually diverticulosis. So elderly patients can have lots of causes of uh, GI bleeding. Um, diverticulosis, colon cancer, arteriovenous malformations, 
that regardless, this patient should be getting a colonoscopy to figure out what exactly is going on. Now, what if I described, instead of a 68-year-old man, what if I described a teenage girl who's coming in with heavy periods? Same thing. She probably has iron deficiency anemia due to blood loss. Iron deficiency anemia is very common and probably the first one that you kind of want to suspect in, um, you know, in patients who have microcytic anemia. Sometimes iron deficiency anemia can present with some weird findings. So what if patients start craving ice chips or dirt? This is pica, where they start craving foods, not, not even foods, they start wanting to eat things that are not really nourishing for them. So that can be seen in patients with IDA. Um, do you guys know the official medical term for patients who have spoon-shaped nails? This is coilonychia. So patients with severe iron deficiency anemia can have coilonychia. And sometimes they might have a beefy red tongue. What's that called? Glossitis, basically enlargement of their tongue. These are just some random weird findings that can be seen in patients with iron deficiency anemia. Now there's one syndrome that you kind of have to know. It's a triad. So it's a triad of iron deficiency anemia plus esophageal webs plus dysphagia. Do you guys know what this is called? IDA, esophageal webs, and dysphagia. This is Plummer-Vinson syndrome. If you got that, pat on the back. Now, of course, if you're suspecting iron deficiency anemia in a patient, you're going to order an iron panel. So let's talk about what that would show. What happens to iron? It's going to be decreased, obviously, because they don't have iron. What's going to happen to total iron binding capacity? That's going to be increased because patients actually have a deficiency of iron, and so they have all this transferrin that's just not bound to iron. And so as a result, their total iron binding capacity is going to be increased. Remember that in anemia of chronic disease, their total iron binding capacity is decreased. But in iron deficiency, the binding capacity is increased. And what happens to ferritin? So ferritin is decreased. Usually the function of ferritin is to store iron intracellularly, and as a result, ferritin will be decreased. Now, just as a note, sometimes in question stems, it can be hard to tell the difference between iron deficiency anemia and thalassemia. So if you're looking at a question and you're not really sure what the culprit is, I would recommend using the RDW, or the red cell distribution width. This is a measure of how variable the red blood cells are in size. So in iron deficiency anemia, we can have a mix of smaller cells and larger cells. And as a result, we'll have an increased RDW. In thalassemia, though, they have a problem making hemoglobin, and so all the cells are smaller. And so these patients will have a normal RDW, or red cell distribution width. So in iron deficiency anemia, just think of it this way. The body is trying to do whatever it can to produce blood cells. And so they are sometimes smaller, sometimes larger, doesn't really care. So we have an increased distribution width. In thalassemia, we have a problem with the ingredients. We don't have hemoglobin. And so all of the cells are uniformly going to be smaller. So the distribution width is going to be normal because there's not a lot of variation. Does that make sense?
I hope so. If not, go back and listen to that part again um, because I just want to make sure you understand what RDW is and how to use it to differentiate between iron deficiency anemia and thalassemia. I'll move on now to the last vignette for microcytic anemia. So in this vignette, I'm going to describe a 44-year-old man who renovates homes for a living, and he's actually brought into the clinic by his wife because he's had several months of forgetfulness and confusion, and it kind of seems to be worsening. When you talk to the patient, he also complains of muscle aches, abdominal pain, constipation. When you examine him, he has weakness in his extensor muscles, and um, Let's say the vignette also provides a picture of his gums, and you can see these dark pigmented lines on his gums. Do you guys know what the diagnosis here is? So this is lead poisoning, okay? For lead poisoning, I want you to think about confusion plus constipation plus axonal degradation, which explains the muscle weakness. Notice that this patient, for his occupation, renovates homes, and so that's a really great way to get lead exposure. Sometimes the question will say that a family just moved into a home from the 1970s or something like that, and that's another clue that this could be lead poisoning. So make sure you look at the history there. Now, do you guys know what specific enzymes lead affects during heme synthesis? So this is kind of tricky, but the two enzymes that are affected by lead are ALA dehydratase, which is in the cytoplasm, and then ferrochelatase. Ferrochelatase is in the mitochondria at the very end of the hemoglobin synthesis pathway. This is actually the enzyme which catalyzes the conversion of protoporphyrin to heme. If you have a deficiency in this enzyme, then iron actually ends up getting trapped in the mitochondria. And what finding do we see on bone marrow smear when iron is trapped in the mitochondria? Think back to one of our earlier cases. It's the same thing. You can get sideroblastic anemia. So lead poisoning can also be a cause of sideroblastic anemia, in addition to alcohol, B6 deficiency, and isoniazid, which we already talked about. So think about lead in that group as well. Um, basically, lead inhibits these enzymes, and it traps iron in the mitochondria. And so that's why you get that ring around the nucleus when you do a bone marrow smear. So that's sideroblastic anemia. Now, what about kids? I did mention that sometimes they'll talk about a family moving into a new home, and the kid will come in. Do you guys know what symptoms happen in children? Children can kind of have more serious symptoms. So they can get decreased IQ, they can get cognitive regression. If it's extreme, they can even get seizures. And so in some areas which have known iron exposure, um, there might actually be guidelines to routinely check iron in children to really protect them from iron, from lead poisoning. Now, what is the treatment for lead poisoning? Do you guys know? It kind of depends on what the lead levels are. So if lead levels are very low, then sometimes you might just observe. But if they get higher, um, we want to use agents to chelate the lead. So some of these agents are dimercaprol, EDTA, and succimer. Pretty standard. So great job, guys. That about sums up all the different types of microcytic anemia that I wanted to talk about. 
Um, hopefully throughout this episode, you've been kind of building a mental diagram, schema, mind palace um, that with, with all of these diseases in mind. To kind of help sharpen that, I'm going to give you a really quick mnemonic. And then as promised, we're going to do some rapid fire questions to review everything we talked about in this episode. So the mnemonic I want to give you for microcytic anemia is T-SAIL. T is for thalassemia. That includes alpha and beta thalassemia. S is for sideroblastic anemia. A is for anemia of chronic disease. I is for iron deficiency anemia. And L is for lead poisoning. So T-SAIL. One more time. Thalassemia, sideroblastic anemia, anemia of chronic disease, iron deficiency anemia, and lead poisoning. So as you're building your mental diagram for anemia, just imagine one branch coming out with the category of microcytic anemia. And underneath that branch, you have the mnemonic T cell with these five different types of anemia. So let's jump in now to our rapid fire and refer to that mental diagram that you've just created. So first of all, what is the MCV or mean corpuscular volume for microcytic anemia? What did we say? Less than 80 femtoliters. Now, what kind of anemia do we get in Mediterranean babies presents a severe anemia? Beta thalassemia major. Uh, what finding do we see on electrophoresis of beta thalassemia? Hemoglobin A2. So instead of a normal hemoglobin, they have two alpha chains and two delta chains because they can't make the beta gene. And why can't they make the beta gene? What type of mutation do they have? They have a point mutation in their beta gene. What type of mutation did we talk about for alpha thalassemia? This is the entire gene deletion. And remember, the severity depends on how many genes are deleted. So what is it called if all four alpha genes are deleted? That's hemoglobin BARTS. It presents with high drops fatalis. What if just two genes are deleted? Which is going to be worse for the offspring, cis or trans? Cis, because you don't want to pass on a chromosome with both genes deleted on it. Now, what did we call a deficiency in ALA synthase or a deficiency in B6? Sideroblastic anemia. And what type of smear shows us the ringed sideroblasts? Bone marrow, remember that's because cells in the bone marrow will still have their nuclei. And then what type of smear shows us the basophilic stippling of the RBCs? That's in the peripheral smear. Great. Now, what molecule is upregulated by the liver in anemia of chronic disease? This is hepcidin. Okay, remember, hepcidin binds ferroportin and it inhibits it so that we cannot absorb iron from the gut and we also cannot release iron from ourselves. From our cells, I'm sorry. Um, what happens to levels of iron in chronic disease? They're decreased. What happens to total iron binding capacity? It's decreased as well. And what happens to ferritin? It is increased. Now, how about iron deficiency anemia? I want you to think about females with heavy bleeds, an older person who has colon cancer, gastritis, diverticulosis, they have occult bleeding. What happens to iron levels? They're decreased. What happens to total iron binding capacity? Increased. And what happens to ferritin? Ferritin is decreased. 
And lastly, what should you think about in a patient who's a male who renovates old homes and he presents with memory loss, weakness, constipation? What is that diagnosis? Think about lead poisoning. Great job, guys, if you survived that rapid-fire review, an extra pat on the back for you. And you have officially made it through part one out of three of our anemia series. Now, I know that anemia is very intimidating because there's so many diseases, there's all these random things to know about them, and then, of course, board questions never make it easy because they present complicated vignettes with many, many different labs, and sometimes images. From this episode, I want you to really take away the mnemonic T-sale and remember the five different causes of microcytic anemias, okay? And if you can remember those, then I think that's one huge step into tackling these challenging questions about anemia. Stay tuned for our next two episodes on normocytic and macrocytic anemia. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope this episode brings you one step closer to mastery of anemia. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, as always, go to our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and you can post them there. If this episode was helpful, please subscribe to our podcast, write us a rating or review. Anemia was definitely one of those topics that had me silently screaming SOS. And hopefully, in your case, Spoonful of Sugar can be there to help the medicine go down. Mm